Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're enjoying this podcast, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review on the Apple Podcasts app as that helps other folks find the show. If you're a founder and working on something innovative, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to DM me on Twitter, at Mike Gelb. I'd like to also thank Jay Kapoor for introducing me to today's guest, Tim Cott, Managing Director and Co-Founder of TAC Ventures. TAC Ventures is an early stage venture capital firm based in Brooklyn and focuses on investing in game changers across sports, media, lifestyle, and entertainment. Investments include Overtime, Shot Tracker, and Greenfly. Tim also co-founded the global sports venture studio, GSVS, with with RGA Ventures and the Los Angeles Dodgers. It was such a pleasure having Tim on, and I really hope you enjoy this as much as I did. So without further ado, here's Tim. Tim, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Mike. Good to be on the show. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. What attracted you to venture capital and kind of a shift from your career in media? Uh, I grew up professionally in media as the major platforms were really coming to life. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Spotify. Uh, Some of my first work as a media planner was really working with those platforms, specifically Facebook, before they even had ad products. And just seeing the growth of those platforms and knowing that as, as a representative or a, a media buyer, uh, we were spending millions of dollars on them. I couldn't help but be intrigued and fascinated by you know, what uh, growth those companies were experiencing and what that investment could have looked like actually as an equity investment as opposed to um, an advertising buy. So that really un- unlocked um, a lot of the interest and then, you know, fortunately, being in New York, uh, so much is at your, so many different industries are at your fingertips. And through that, I was able to start networking with people in venture capital, with entrepreneurs, with the startup ecosystem here, and kind of meshed what I was doing in the advertising and media world into an interest and eventual um, role as an operator in venture capital. I think the other catalyst was at a ad agency, really early social media agency, actually, that was eventually acquired by Vice Media, too. So like actually being present through an acquisition and seeing that, too, uh, was, was also a helpful uh, moment in my experience. Yeah, I can only imagine. So let's talk about TAC. What makes your fund unique? And I understand you are early stage, but what what is your typical check size? Sure. So, you know, I'll answer your first question about what makes us unique. I think it was as simple as being really bullish on New York as a startup and venture ecosystem. That seems really obvious now and what's almost 2020 or uh, what will be 2020 when people are listening to this. But when we first got involved in 2015, there wasn't too much of a startup ecosystem here. Uh, most of that activity was still in the Bay Area. So that's kind of how we started. And uh, when I was at Vice Media, just exposed to a lot of new and interesting companies in media and just felt like there was this missing piece of the role that culture plays in the growth of the growth that, that companies have. And so we invest in companies that we believe 
have an impact on culture or are aligned with where culture is headed. And that's kind of been our evolved thesis over time. Uh, that started with uh, more of a focus on sports at first, just because of the impact sports has on culture. But ultimately, um, we've broadened that a bit more to just align with the impact of uh, uh, that culture has. And then as far as our check size, we have uh, participate, we participate at the, the pre-seed, seed, and Series A. Uh, we've invested everything from a 50K check to a 250K check, and then we do follow-on investing as well. Quite honestly, our investment strategy continues to evolve as the ecosystem changes and more capital has entered the ecosystem. So right now, you know, we're still writing, continuing to write those same size checks, but also, you know, thinking about how we want to evolve that uh, with what terms look like right now and, and how deals are getting funded. I wanted to know, just in your own words, what makes New York special and kind of ripe for you to become investors in it? Sure. So I, I think it's probably a similar answer that you hear from other investors that are here, which is really the intersection of so many industries that are here. So you have you know, the best in finance, the best in media. Um, you still have the big Googles and Facebooks and Amazons of the world with huge presences here as well. So any company that wants to be successful, whether it's um, you know, from an enterprise perspective and having the clients here, or even from a consumer perspective and understanding consumer taste, uh, New York's gonna have an impact on it. And so while the New York market is still relatively small compared to the um, San Francisco Bay Area venture market, there is that intersection which excites a lot of us and is why we're active here and believe in it for the long term. So I saw your presentation at Soccer X, which was fabulous, by the way, and your talk about the rise of venture capital and sport. How is tech disrupting sports and how do you visualize tech changing the sports industry in the next few years? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for watching that presentation. That was a lot of fun to get to present to a lot of different representatives from leagues, international teams and clubs. Uh, as well as various startups in the ecosystem. I really enjoyed that. I think that tech has really disrupted, well, it's disrupted every industry, but for sports specifically, it's actually, I talk a little bit in, in that talk about how it's uh, the disruption from technology has actually been a huge boon to sports because live entertainment, uh, specifically sports, is the one thing that's been able to cut through and and maintain and actually grow a level of attention that um, no other, you know, like legacy media or um, other kind of uh, entertainment uh, properties have, have been able to do. So in that sense, sports has actually benefited a lot. And as a result, uh, the media rights deals have gained a lot in value. So then the leagues have gained value and then the teams have gained value. And now players are making more money. And that's actually created a little bit of an ecosystem I mean, not a little bit. I mean, it's created a very large ecosystem where there's so much more capital in sports now and people looking at teams as uh, growth assets. And so then you have much more savvy investors that have come in that where, where a lot of capital is required to buy a team. And so when that much capital is at stake, you actually have people that are bringing capital from other industries or experience from other industries, I should say. And they're wanting to be more savvy with how they operate these clubs. So I worked really closely with the Los Angeles Dodgers uh, from 2018 through 
um, the middle of, of 2019. And that was a perfect example of that. This was Guggenheim coming in uh, at the time. It was the biggest purchase price for any club, uh, which was a $2 billion price tag. And they said, okay, how do we build out this LA Dodgers team as really uh, or, or asset as a platform for other investments where we can create an unfair advantage in the things that we're investing in by giving them access to the things that the, the Dodgers ecosystem and the Dodgers reach provides. And so you're now seeing that uh, starting to happen with other teams and clubs and leagues are thinking about it that way. And I think from a global basis, the U.S. is similar to uh, how, how other uh, aspects of the venture ecosystem look. The U.S. is quite far ahead, but especially in sports uh, and the relation of technology in sports, U.S. is, you know, like a decade ahead, if you, if you want to put a number on it just in terms of investment and then also like integration of these technologies. With your work with the Dodgers, are you worried about teams creating their own venture capital funds or just what are your thoughts on the subject? Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm like, I don't know if worried is the right term, but I, I do talk a little bit about the, the lack of expertise because if you're trying to be an investor in any sector, you need to have financial return as your first and foremost goal. And in from a venture approach perspective if you especially if you're doing like early stage you need to have a long-term outlook a seven to ten year plus outlook for your investment and, and create a portfolio strategy against that and have capital that's dedicated to work towards those deals and what i've seen a lot and this is not at all about you know the dodgers do an excellent job but what i've seen a lot with other groups is maybe a lot of excitement to try and leverage their their brand uh, or their reach, you know, their fans into um, something to build investments off of, but then quickly lose steam. And so, or, or not have the right expertise to be analyzing investment opportunities. And so as a result, uh, you know, one or two or three years in, they'll maybe have made an investment or two, but they'll kind of shut down that effort because they realize it's maybe not right for them or they're not, they don't have the right mindset for, how, how something should develop or uh, maybe they're not thinking about something uh, or realizing that it needs to go beyond sport often to really be successful, um, to have a big enough market to address where it could be something that pays off from a venture standpoint. Talk to me a little bit about your own diligence process. Obviously, you're at the very early stages with uh, 50K to 250K checks. And I'd imagine there's you know, in a lot, maybe in a lot of cases, there's not even really a full out fledged out product yet. Sure. So the, the immediate filter is always looking at a combination of who the founder is, what the idea is, and what we believe or what the founder believes to the addressable market to be. So um, I think the earlier the deal, the more important the founder. Uh, but also, it's hard to actually say what's most important, but yeah, the founder is critical. And with founders specifically, what we look for is an incredible combination of long-term vision and the ability to execute in the immediate term or on a daily basis. And most people don't have that. And, I, and quite honestly, I'm not so sure that, you know, that like that's my skill set to have both of those. Um, skills because those can often be in, in conflict of one another, and so you'll we'll see it in maybe two co-founders, right, where maybe they complement each other. But even then, you want to see a certain level of 
both that long-term vision and that short-term uh, diligence and ability to execute in both founders. Uh, because that's the only way progress is going to happen on whatever it is they're building. But also, you can ensure or at least hope that they're going to have that bigger picture in mind, which makes it something that can qualify as a true venture bet. I was looking at your portfolio and I saw that there, there was a date box is from Oklahoma city shot tracker is from Kansas. So you have a couple companies in your portfolio that are from, you know, secondary tertiary markets, not from maybe the big, the big hubs of venture capital. What is your advice for founders that are in those type of markets? Yeah. So in those two deals specifically, those were actually brought to us, I think, originally through connections we had at various angel networks in the Midwest. Uh, both my partner and I grew up in the Midwest. Um, my wife, who's my partner in Tech Ventures, she grew up in Oklahoma and I grew up in Wisconsin. So that gave us some exposure to people who knew about those deals. I think that there are a lot, there's a, a lot of new groups that have been stood up uh, in these underserved markets that do an excellent job of networking and helping to pull in investors for exposure to companies. So admittedly, those different incubators and accelerators and launch pads and programs can be a bit of hit or miss. But I do think one value that they can really provide is an introduction to potential investors if you as a founder don't necessarily have uh, any sort of connection into that space yet. I think on the coast, it's a little bit easier to network your way into, you know, a warm introduction. Um, but it's 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 never easy as an entrepreneur um, to get the attention of an investor. And so, the best advice I can give is just to be diligent and um, to continue to knock on the door and also to do your homework about who you think, based on you know whether it's what they're saying on social media or you know what they stand for based on their portfolio investments or uh, what their website says to really show like you've also done the work to understand why this investor would be interested in you in the first place. And so whenever I get an inbound, that's maybe not a warm welcome, but even if it is, I always really appreciate when it's clear to me that they either looked at our portfolio or at our website and they saw alignment with something that they're doing with the investments maybe we've made in the past, or at least what we say we stand for, and they call that out. And, you know, I think that's going to get you as an entrepreneur much closer to that initial conversation. Um, and then you just keep knocking on the door from there. Entrepreneurs that are in, you know, secondary and tertiary markets by, you know, maybe seeking an accelerator that, that, that can help establish some connections. Uh, whereas entrepreneurs that are in the major hubs, uh, you know, of course, an accelerator might also make sense for them, but it could be a bit easier to seek a warm intro and raise around because they're in those because there's in those major hubs. So that's that's great. How so? How do you think about the landscape of the media industry changing from an advertising model to a subscription model, and how are you thinking about media and e-commerce converging in the future? Well, I think it's an interesting question. I'm not so sure that advertising, that an advertising model has shifted to subscription. I mean, certainly you have the rise of all these new OTT platforms. You have some initial success with um, subscription from various newspaper publications or media platforms like The Athletic. 
but old, uh, old ways die really hard. And the media industry has always been predicated on an advertising model. And so I don't see that actually going away anytime soon. I also kind of see it as a necessary evil, even for new media companies that are standing up and some of the investments we've made, that's going to be their primary um, revenue channel. That being said, it's, as a media company, you do need to get a lot more creative uh, in what your offering is to brands from an advertising standpoint. And so as a result, uh, you're seeing a lot more advancement in like what branded content can look like. Um, you know, that's even like a dirty word in some sense, because it's, it's, it's more than that, I would say, or at least most media companies would, would claim like, Oh, it's more than just branded content. Um, so I think, I think it's tough to look at it in absolute terms, like the whole industry is shifting from advertising to subscription. The other interesting thing that I'm really trying to follow as closely as possible is the willingness for like pay-per-view or even like tipping and what that looks like. I mean, tipping is kind of was in vogue and it's kind of gone away. Um, some earlier companies, similar to like TikTok type companies were trying to do that and didn't necessarily have too much success. But I think about like that YouTube influencer KSI versus Logan Paul fight, right? And how they had like over a million viewers or, or, or close to a million viewers for their fight and how that ended up being a pay-per-view. Granted, that was like boxing. And so that followed like a more familiar behavior. But I think there's an interesting opportunity to play around with paying a dollar for this or, you know, $2 for this versus expecting and I'm talking like especially about Gen Z like expecting that they would just stack subscriptions on top of one another and, and be willing to pay that on a monthly basis so that's one interesting thing and then the second part of your question around thinking about media and e-commerce converging I mean that's something that I get really excited about it has it, it has yet to be like the nut that anyone's truly cracked I mean granted you have what is it like complex had sold like $8 million worth of hot sauce or something that they claimed last year. Like that's kind of interesting, but yeah, the investments I've made in companies like Overtime and Rome are really predicated on that idea of content, which leads to community, which leads to commerce. And so they're still developing exactly what that commerce looks like. Sure. It's merchandise or apparel, but uh, there's other opportunities as well that they're just starting to play around with and develop. And that's what I get really excited about. So, is it is it a requirement when you make investment that the company already has product market fit? I don't know if I would say product market fit is an absolute requirement in the way that it's traditionally understood. But I do think that uh, customer development and understanding is critical and progress in product is critical. So I don't think you can expect like a pre-seed or even a seed company to be just capital away from, you know, true growth and scale. But the barrier to entry on standing something up or creating something new, but and then also to like be able to gather data and understanding of customer, the barrier to entry on those things has never been lower. And so there's a certain level of expectation that's granted it's different for every idea or, or founder that we talk to, but that, but that I do expect to see. And that's as much as a validation of willingness to commit to something and also willingness to like, for lack of a better term, bootstrap. 
something or at least push the ball forward. Going back to what I was saying earlier about looking for founders that have that ability of great vision, but also that daily progress. Like I need, we need to see that daily progress already taking place, even with limited capital or limited resources because of the tool, the free tools that are available. So I think that's the most important thing to me is, is really seeing with or without capital, we're going to continue to push this forward, even if it's a side hustle, you know, I've got my full-time job doing something else. This is something that I'm going to continue to make progress on and learn more about my customer or iterate on product with. And that part's harder if it's like a non-technical company or non-technical founder. But I, I do think that that's just a reality of where we're at with tools and uh, what's available to founders uh, in this day and age. That makes sense. How do you think about when a founder tells you about their solution and that this is a real maybe pain point for the consumer? How do you judge about how large of a pain point it is for a consumer, like a problem? Sure. So one way to do that is to try and focus on industries that we feel like we know. And sports is one of those. Media is one of those. Uh, consumer brand and development is another. I also have a level of expectation that the founders quantifying that in some terms. And then I'm, my role is to, to kind of check against what they're saying the opportunity is, right? So I think that's kind of a tricky question. It's going to depend on, you know, how let's say like new age or, or frontier the area is that they're exploring, but it's also where it does help to try and at least have some sort of guardrails on the, the things that we look at. So we're not going to look at, you know, like deep machine learning or artificial intelligence because that's not really our expertise. Or we're not going to look at healthcare because that's not our expertise. I think for us, it's a combination of trying to have somewhat of a focus on what we do and then using our, leveraging our network of professionals who are experts in those areas to help provide some feedback as well. And then also, you know, checking against what the founder is saying the opportunity is. In enterprise companies, you can at least talk to companies and see what a pain point it is and maybe judge how much they're willing to pay if another company is able to solve that problem. However, I think consumer, it's really difficult to judge whether it is actually how big of a pain point it is for consumers. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's where, especially in early stage, like there's a bit of gut involved. But, you know, you look at, it is why consumers become increasingly more difficult just even in like the past six months or 12 months is because there's so much more saturation in these new brands that are standing up. But you look at beverage, for example, and that's really challenging because there's really no barrier to entry to create a new beverage. And um, to put that out there or get like a Whole Foods deal or get it in a couple stores, like there's not really much barrier to that. And so we need to look at other factors as to how that company could grow and, and be like a lucrative acquisition target. And so when we invested in Iris Nova, which is the parent company of Dirty Lemon, it was because we got really excited. I mean, granted, at that point, they had absolute product market fit and they were doing quite well from a revenue standpoint. But they, there was these other factors like being the first with this kind of conversational commerce model where you could really fulfill orders from consumers directly via text message. Uh, and then also to be able to gain a direct relationship and understanding of who your consumer is. And then they were testing with some brick and mortar ideas and other fulfillment through that. And now they're rolling in other brands onto their platform. So all of those markers are differentiated from really what any other 
new beverage company is doing. And that those were ideas that were part of the the pitch kind of from day one. And so like, I think those, the other things are like, how are you differentiating from what else is out there? Not just from a pure product standpoint, but also thinking about it from like an actual ops or technology standpoint as well. How do you think about investing in today's landscape when there's such an abundance of capital? Yeah, well, specific to consumer, we are really reevaluating what our investment approach is. I would encourage founders to see if there's a way to raise less <laughs> and maybe think about approaches w- with um, lower aspirations for exit out of the gate. If you have a really unique product idea, but it is a niche idea, what's to say that uh, it's not okay to to think in just a pure product line opportunity or acquisition opportunity for a CPG uh, where they where their value add is the scale that they have. But if you raise on wild terms, like you're not going to have that same opportunity um, should you hit success and get to certain revenue markers. From an investment standpoint, it has it, it is definitely a challenge how we think about it because we're seeing a lot of inflated deals with you know non-technical or diverse products or platforms or first-time founders and you know those are just markers right they're not like absolute requirements by any means and it's important to hear from from any kind of entrepreneur but there's so many active investors at early stage that it's it's kind of created a cause for pause on our end to make sure that we have conviction that whatever it is we're investing in is going to be able to adjust, uh, or, or I should say it's built for the long haul. I really like your point, and entrepreneurs should really think about how much capital they need to fundraise. What would you change when it comes to venture capital? Sure. So I think that goes back to what we were just talking about, which is really the glorification of valuations and capital raised. And everyone is guilty of being part of the hype cycle. Uh you know, I, I'm sure I post every time a portfolio company that we're involved with uh, raises additional capital because those are the markers we have, right, to show success along with, you know, whatever other PR that the company's generating. But it, it can be toxic at times, and it does, I think, create too much of a focus on the capital raising uh, as opposed to the company building. So I think for me, it would be if we could you know, temper the hype cycle and just like the complete focus on how much money raised and instead, you know, just be as much of an ally to founders and entrepreneurs uh, as possible because it's really challenging to be in their position. And the more that we can encourage entrepreneurship, like the, the better our society is going to be as a whole. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I've heard some venture capitalists say that they really are get tired of the ego as well. What are some consumer trends or shifts in uh, consumer behavior are you excited about? One of the things that I'm following closely is the evolution of experience and how new companies, new and old companies are building new experiences and building new IP around those experiences and then figuring out revenue models to, to sell against those experiences. So over time, is a great example, a company that we invested in at the seed and series A stage. They had this huge event last year that they called the overtime takeover. And whereas, and, and for the listeners not familiar with overtime, they are really kind of considered uh, like ESPN for Gen Z, but they're really telling the stories of like high school athletes and especially basketball players. And so 
Whereas a lot of existing brands out there uh, have these all-star games for, you know, the elite basketball players that are out there. They went a step further and they, yes, they brought in a lot of those same elite players, but uh, they created a whole new event. They kind of changed some of the rules. They really made it like an entertainment spectacle that was about the kids first and foremost and the experience that they were having, experience that their parents were having, and really trying to create a really fun environment instead of kind of this back and forth game that like any all-star game kind of loses any sort of competitive element and um, ends up just being almost kind of, you know, people goofing around or whatnot. So to, to take a kind of a known experience, but then make it their own um, and then think about how to build off of that has been exciting to watch. And I, I see other companies kind of thinking about experience on that same level and creating those touch points directly with consumers as part of their flywheel for the brands that they're building. And that's what I get really excited about. When I had Jay on, Jacob Hoare, he was that was the one company that he was most excited about. Oh, he's taking my thunder. What's one book that influenced you professionally and one book that influenced you personally? One of my favorite books that I continue to go back to is Principles by Ray Dalio. And I love that he's digitized a lot of the book. He's even created an app around it so you can almost meditate off of it. But it's just so pragmatic and talks a lot about the journey and learning from the journey. And I'm a big believer in the in trying to find joy in the journey, right? I think that there's too much pressure out there to think about the outcome. And too often when you are just focused on that, it actually ends up being detrimental to the journey that you're on. And so uh, the more that we can look at what's right in front of us, and learn from the things that we're doing and, and have reason for the things that we're doing, the more that we can progress. So that's definitely one I come back to quite a bit. And I'm also happy because you are the first person that uh, answered this question with principles. So you're original yeah. there. <laughs> so what's, What's one company that you had the opportunity to invest in, didn't, and in retrospect, wish you did? You hear a lot about the failure portfolio, and so we've had a few of those opportunities that we missed on. I think the biggest one for us is certainly StockX. It was one that, I guess this would have been 2016, so we looked at their second seed or their Series A, and at the time, we had just stood up our fund you know, shortly before that. And so we were still getting a feel for, you know, what our investment criteria was and what we wanted to see from a terms perspective and how terms would match back to revenue and whatnot. And so what we felt with that one, which is now silly to think about, especially the, envir the investment environment now compared to them, but it felt like it was a little expensive compared to where they were at from a progress standpoint. And so ultimately that was why we had passed, but you know, it's done really well and continues to grow rapidly. So unfortunately we missed on that one, but we were happy to have had the chance to take a look at it. You know, there's other examples where we either new founders or had the chance for an introduction and, you know, maybe our own kind of stubbornness or belief about something just didn't line up with what we were hearing about, you know, a certain company. And so we you know, ultimately passed on that. So I think that's a good learning experience too, to, have a willingness to make room for as many of those referrals or um, conversations as possible. So it's constantly a learning experience. I would like to think that with each investment we've made, we 
get better on the next one from our approach, but we also try to do our best to have a really clear kind of opinion as to why we didn't invest in something so that we can always come back to that and understand, you know, why we passed and maybe adjust for the future. The reason why I asked that question is because I always think it's interesting hearing from investors what they how they were looking at the market and the opportunity at the time of investment. What is your most recent announced investment and what gets you excited about it? Most recently, we invested in a bank actually, which is not too common. Uh, but we invested in Grasshopper Bank, which is a New York-based venture bank serving both startups and venture funds. And what got us excited about this company is really their focus on the underserved, the underserved founder and how they can provide a better banking experience for them. But then matching that equally with a completely new technology platform, new to the banking and financial world, at least from a true bank perspective. So this is the first charter. Uh, they were able to get the first banking charter since the financial crisis. So creating a new tech platform for their customers as well. So the combination of those two things really excited us. The founder, Judith Irwin, she was at another venture, successful venture bank previously as an executive. And so to support her, you know, they absolutely walk the talk <laughs> and have an incredibly gifted group of people in their building. And so there's been some press around Grasshopper thus far and looking forward to really a big rollout uh, in the new year. So we're excited about that one. That is really exciting. Is it only New York centric or are they just based in New York? Just based in New York. So they are you know, open to all customers. Great. That's awesome. It's actually also a great plug since viewers are you know building B2C companies or are venture capitalists. So uh, that's great. What's one piece of advice that you have for startups of consumer companies? Yeah, I think this goes back to what we were saying about capital raise and also progress on product. Now, I think with physical product, it's a lot more challenging to have that progress on product than you would expect from a tech company. But it doesn't mean there's not still ways you can bring to life your vision and help an investor get there on what it is you're building. So I would keep that in mind. I would keep iterating. I'll keep building every single day to think about how you can showcase that vision and why you're uniquely prepared to realize it as a founder. And then also understand that it's tricky and physical product or hardware can get can scare people away and, and can be complicated. And it takes a longer time. It takes more capital. So um, I realize some of those things are in conflict with one another, but it's got to be unique to each individual situation. And that's why I encourage like just balance that long-term vision, focus towards growth and, and capital raising with making a little bit of progress every single day on what the on, on bringing the product to life. Those are some great points. That's very well said. Tim, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Mike, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hopefully uh, your listeners find this insightful and I appreciate you having me on. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Tim on, and I really appreciate him sharing his experiences at the intersection of sports and tech, as well as his due diligence process and a glimpse of just how he looks at the world. If you'd like to follow Tim, feel free to follow him on Twitter at Tim underscore Kott, K-A-T-T. If you'd like to follow along behind the scenes on the show or have a question you'd like to hear VCs answer, you can follow me and feel free to DM me at Mike Gelb and follow at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. And for all you sports fans, Tim is also in the midst of starting a podcast with Jay Kapoor, the first guest on this show, called The Game Plan. The Game Plan is a podcast where Tim and Jay interview current and former professional athletes about theoretically business interests 
interests off the field. Their very first episode comes out this week, so make sure you subscribe and see the link in the show notes to learn more. Thanks again, Jay, for introducing me to Tim, and until next time, folks.